Oh, hi. Didn't see you there. Fancy seeing you here. Aww. Are you also... Wait, are you also recording a podcast? I am. Wait, are no, you recording a I, See, I thought so Shut because up. that's usually what happens in the Zoom. I didn't want to like presuppose. Oh, my God. Wait, what are you doing your podcast about? Um, It's called Let's Learn Everything. It's like a science and comedy <gasps> No, wait. I also do a podcast called Let's Learn Everything. It's 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 kind of like a more of a comedy science mix. Oh, thing. hi oh. guys. Well, oh. I can't. What are you doing here? What are you... So we just found out that we're both recording podcasts with the same name, which is yeah. Oh, I'm recording a podcast too. Don't you Shut fucking don't you up. dare! I swear to God, Ella. It's called Let's Learn Everything. God <gasps> damn it! No. Oh, you it... know what? If it's an issue, we can't. We can't oh, all three have a. We, we could just do it together. Fight to the death. Oh. Uh, oh. Oh. I, I mean, <laughs> I prefer. Oh. I prefer yours, Tom. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. Today, we're going to be covering a science topic. We're going to be answering a science question, and we'll be learning about a miscellaneous topic as well. My name is Tom, and today's main science topic is superseded theories in science. Theories that we used to believe. <gasps> the sort of like awkward Ooh. teen theories that would then grow up to be the ones we know today. Oh. Uh, we're not and and we're not gonna we're not gonna do the easy shit like flat earth and geocentrism we're gonna do stuff that i didn't even know was behind a lot of modern scientific theories that we still use today nice that's okay. gonna be so much fun i probably won't know anything then which is quite exciting well we'll see i am ella and today's question is why is tb still a thing oh <gasps> yeah that huh. makes so much sense based on previous conversations we've had. Yeah. On <laughs> a, 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 a various person's Twitter three, uh, threads yeah. recently. I'm sure that'll be talked up. about later. And we, yeah, we'll talk about it. A certain young adult author who shall not be named. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we signed an exclusivity deal with Hank. We can't mention the other Green Brother. Yeah. Yeah. Them's the rules. Um, but no, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've heard of this but i don't mm, know the, mm -hmm. the science of it and i mm. should and so I'm, I'm gonna i'm very excited to hear learn about this yeah yay my name is caroline and this episode's miscellaneous topic is going to be talking about the radium girls <gasps> oh hell yeah i don't know what that is oh i think ella you're gonna quite like this one we'll yeah. talk about who they were why they became so well known and the legacy that they left behind oh this is amazing amazing okay cool i'm excited to learn so today's main topic is superseded theories in science. And mm -hmm. I want to explain that warning uh, because I, I had a few different titles for this up. It was initially going to be Extinct Sciences was what I wrote in my notes originally. I think that, that, that sounds cool. And like obsolete or like defunct theories also came mm -hmm. to mind. But on Wikipedia's big list of like these kinds of theories, they use the phrase superseded theories in science. Mm -hmm. And I really like that framing a lot because... In my mind, it highlights a very specific thing that we're talking about. We're not going to be talking about like fringe science or like pseudoscience in this topic. Although we could we could start like a whole separate podcast for that. Call it something like, uh, oh, fuck, Tom and Caroline and Ella. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know, that was a joke on the podcast. Oh, no, Ross and Carrie, which is also on the Maximum Fun Network. <laughs> so uh, unlike pseudoscience 
a superseded theory is a real scientific theory that can be proven wrong and was. Mm-hmm. You know, while in hindsight, sometimes they like seem silly. These are all testable scientific theories. And while pseudoscience and fringe science can be harmful, superseded theories are not something bad about science, right? It's literally what science is. They're just part of the scientific process of yeah, like exactly. you come up with an idea and then you test that idea. And then the idea is wrong and taken over by a new, better idea, and so on. Which people who are anti-science don't seem to understand yeah, the that concept was that, of that. Yeah. yeah, This is something that came up a lot during like the early stages, and actually carrying on through the stage of the pandemic, of like people not understanding that scientists regularly go through like trying to learn about things and then thinking that something's right and then going through testing and then realizing that's not right and not being like stubborn and being like no we said this thing like it's better to acknowledge that you're incorrect about something and change that theory so yeah yeah Yeah. i also really love them because i feel like they explain the thought process of science Mm, uh mm -hmm. like you can learn so much about a theory by looking at how they got there and the steps along the way, mm-hmm. which is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at uh, the the molted skin of science, basically. So the other thing about phrasing it as superseded theories is they emphasize the new theory that would eventually replace them, right? Which is not only informative, but fun, because it's sort of like uh, a BuzzFeed game of like pictures of famous actors when they were kids, or it's like a where are they now? It's like, wow, oh my God, thermodynamics, you had a real glow up. You used to be flostogen theory. I had no idea. <laughs> like, honestly, in hindsight, I should have prepared this topic like a, I don't know if I still have time. Can I do that? Like, like make it like a game, like a, uh, like a guess the theory, like have a little game show theme prepared. Sure, like something if you like... think you... Oh. <laughs> Like, I knew the bit was coming. That was great. I knew it in my soul that that was going to happen. And I was still, like, so happily surprised that you pulled that out. I really like that. I like the clap at the end. It's a little LLE theme on the variation on the game show theme. And also, now that we have it, if in case you guys ever want to bust it out. um, I wish we'd had it sooner. We've done so many quizzes on the the show before. (laughs) Uh, But today's game show... Uh, we're going to play a game of what superseded that theory. Oh, my God. The game where Amazing. you have to guess what well-established scientific theory this baby theory would turn into. Oh. Um, or if you prefer, uh, we could also go with this theme. Who's that? Now well-accepted scientific theory. <laughs> <laughs> I love the terrible quality. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. the peaking is so good. Yeah. I, I basically put the worst microphone I had into my mouth. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um all right i'm i'm excited this is gonna be fun tom for for the listener tom just did a little dance a little dance (laughs) (laughs) any any listeners anytime you hear a silence from me you can just assume i'm doing a little dance that's literally when when caroline and i are doing our topics and we're talking tom is just (laughs) dancing in the background <laughs> the whole time. continuously it's really quite distracting i'll let you know when i'm not like if there's just like a deep <laughs> moment of silence for the radium girls you will i'll be like not not dancing not dancing, not dancing. Yeah. <laughs> all right for this game we're going to start with the easy and the silly then we're going to get to some surprising ones 
And then we're going to end with a really tricky one, my favorite, and also the reason I did this topic at all. Oh my god, Ella's got a notebook out. Is oh that how god. serious Guys, it's this not, is? It's, it's still a podcast topic. It's, I, it, it's, no, it's this is still, for a joke still... that I'm going to I'm gonna say later. <laughs> I can't fucking... <laughs> to admit it and call your shot is the most Babe Ruth of jokes. To be like, oh, by the way, that was a setup for a joke, yeah. and you're still going to laugh at it, even though I told you. <laughs> That's the like Penn and Teller bit where oh they reveal God. how to do the magic trick and they still do it anyway. Yeah. Anyway. That was the most Tom thing you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, we, are we using Tom as a pejorative now? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like the opposite of Riz. <laughs> it's a colloquialism we can all use. <laughs> oh, that's mean. All right. Uh, okay. So as a warm up, of course, the geocentric theory was that the Earth was at the center of the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, um, but that would be superseded by solar, so, so, epi-solar, solar center. It's a different root. It's a, it's a helio is the root. Heliocentric. Yep. There, there you go. go. That's like the classic example in my mind. But also, I mean, if you guys have any while we're doing the like warm up rapid fire round, do you guys have any favorite uh, superseded theories in science that you I know, know? Like the history of embryology, like how we understood Ooh. how we we are formed, and mm -hmm. there were a lot of theories that we just started like yes, 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 you know, fully formed, and then like expanded. That was like a very early theory of how. Oh wow! Like babies yes I, yes i saw this i almost included it uh let me, let me look up what it's called but now we know obviously it's cell division yeah oh god what was it called uh tom's dancing sorry <laughs> <laughs> no i'm googling pre-formationism pre-formationism that's what that was called yeah oh, wow. so that's where where you start off just like you know like one of those um dinosaur toys you put in water i knew water. you were gonna say one of the dinosaur toys <laughs> i knew that's where that was going yeah that's that's what's in that's what's in your gametes baby it's just a bunch of little uh little, little miniature use uh another classic example that honestly i got tired of is the all the various models of the atom so like the plum pudding model i don't know that basically like we thought for a while that the atom was just like was plum pudding was like all the, the electrons neutrons and protons were just like in this gelatin basically mm -hmm. uh, and we're just kind of like floating around mm. and then the Bohr model had electrons orbiting a central nucleus and then there was like the electron cloud model and there's now like quarks and quantum stuff you know like the the the, the jimmy neutron model of the atom is is, yeah. is inaccurate because of like you know the ratios of sizes and movement i actually didn't know that yeah that's so that's um sad poor jimmy neutron <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're going to hop back into the game. This is a classic of superseded theories in science. Do you, either of you guys know about the theory of miasma and what that would become? I've heard of this before. Yeah, I'll give you some more info in a second. Is this uh, an <clears throat> illness? Yes. Do you know what illness theory it would sort of like morph into? Is it like depression? No, no. A miasma. I've heard this so many yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. Can, I have a, can we have a clue? Don't yeah. tell me. So... Miasma theory is the idea from around the 18th century that bad air was the spread of infectious disease. Oh, okay. Or as the Oxford Reference Dictionary defines it, quotes, an ill-defined emanation from rotting organic matter. So was this to do with... Oh, this might be a oh, bit late. Oh, is it late. bacteria? Is it like bacterial infection? Oh. Yes, it's, ger it's germ theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. And it's funny because, you know, this it feels so obvious to us now that it's almost hard to guess these mm -hmm. questions. That's a great word. My, my as 
Meh. I think I probably heard it in, not in the terms of what it was originally for, but like in literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, uh, like a miasma of despair. Yes. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so with germ theory, we know now that it's not bad air that's causing disease, but microscopic pathogens like bacteria fungi or viruses that are transmitted. But what's interesting is that one of the remedies for miasma is to keep an area well ventilated to like circulate out the bad air. And under germ theory, keeping areas well ventilated does help with some airborne pathogens. So while the theory isn't like 100% spot on by any means, some of its intuitions and practices were still accurate, which is uh, Mm. interesting. Uh, not with this next one, though. Oh, uh, no. Another greatest hit. The theory of spontaneous generation. Uh, I'll give you a point if you can explain or any of them. There's multiple answers to this one because it was such a bad theory. Spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generous of what? This is like an Aristotle time. Oh, right. Spontaneous generation of... Is it health or is it physics? It's biology. Biology? <laughs> This is God. very bad. This is a bad theory, by the way. Is it about getting pregnant? No. Um, no? In a way. Not for humans. Not for humans. For plants? I just wanted to include this because I thought it was funny. So you, I, I can't believe you guys don't remember. I, I so distinctly remember this because my middle school biology teacher taught it so poorly that it stuck with me because they explained <laughs> it very, very silly. So it's the idea that life can come from inorganic matter. Have either of you guys heard this theory? No. It's bad. It's very yeah. fun. It's very old. Um, so Aristotle apparently understood that humans and birds and reptiles reproduced, but thought that things like worms and oysters just kind of came from the ground. Oh, oh, that's oh, so funny. Okay, great. Yeah, uh, as he said in the history of animals, quote, there is one property that animals are found to have in common with plants. For some plants are generated from the seed of plants. Good, correct, Aristotle. Amazing, solid, yeah. Whilst other plants are self-generated from the formation <laughs> of some <laughs> elemental principle similar to a seed. Similar to a seed? I'm sorry, yeah, it, what? It, it's, it, that's, that's the funny thing is he like fully acknowledges like, this process but then is like but there's also another thing and it's like wh- wh- why? why why do you have to make up a well i'll tell you why is because there were many examples in that time of animals seemingly coming from nowhere and so that's why he talks about things like worms and mm, clams mm-hmm. yeah. that seem to just like come out of the sand or like you know when it rains it feels like there's worms pop oh my god up there's everywhere. a slug on the ground now from the rain must have come from the ground yeah, yeah. from the rain I, yeah here's the thing like i'm not gonna like stop calling aristotle an idiot right because it was thousands and thousands of years ago and this is like and these are the first people thinking yeah. about these ideas in this kind of detail but there's a thing with aristotle and his kind of successors is that philosophy and science were like t- mm. went hand in hand yeah it That's wasn't true. Yeah. really science like they didn't test anything. They just came up with mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. Which is not, is not to say that they weren't interesting. And a lot of them like went on to inspire people to do proper mm. science. But totally, totally. they weren't really scientists. They were philosophers. And that's yeah. why their ideas are so kind of out there. The, yep. the the theory we were talking about before with the growing fully, like with fully formed organs yeah, yeah, yeah. and then just expanding, that started with Aristotle as an homunculi. Yeah. So yeah. he said that there was a tiny man in the head of a sperm, right? And then, and then he just like, he just popped out and grew big, you know, (laughs) 
Yeah. And in, in some ways they do feel like, especially with the, the pre-formation thing, it, it is one of those things where it's like they can't see that small, right? And so mm, there mm-hmm. you can almost, it's almost like a, a hand wave. It's like, we don't know yet, but maybe yeah. this, right? Yeah. And it has yeah. like testable hypotheses. It's like, well, we expect to see that there. And then when microscopes become a thing, we don't see it. And so then... The, the theory changes. Uh, people also thought this at the time of frogs, because sometimes if you just had like, had like a ditch and it was like moist enough, sometimes frogs would appear, right? Quote unquote. Um, but also the biggest one for this was like maggots, right? Because they seemingly oh, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. appear on rotting flesh. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think I think it was Louis Pasteur did a famous experiment where he like covered raw meat and then had one uncovered and then found out that it was like flies and stuff like that that yeah. was that yeah were, yeah that, were that makes sense the... it's amazing how much we figured out once we started using microscopes like it's crazy right? yeah <laughs> yeah topic for another time mm. <laughs> now we're gonna get to the tricky ones this one is Ooh. really fun have either of you heard of the amber effect no the amber effect i mean i assume it has something to do with like insects and things Park. being trapped in amber yeah yeah <laughs> it's not actually it's not no can either of you guess also what it would become because you've definitely heard of this theory that it becomes which is wild i i'm trying to just like like figure out so is it the, called the amber effect because of like the color or something like that so we're, we're gonna these are all great thoughts we're gonna okay. we're gonna hop into it and at any time you guys can can buzz in for what this would be nice so this theory was described as early as in ancient greece oh wow but people were still figuring it out into the 1600s mm. this theory supposes that rocks like amber had as sir thomas brown described in 1646 quote a power to attract straws or light bodies is it magnets it's not the power is it static? It fucking is. <laughs> yeah! Oh! Oh! Oh my god, amazing. Nice, good job, Caroline. So since ancient Greek times, people found that amber had a property that some people thought was magnetism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and others thought was related to magnetism. I, f- I found a lot of great history from Yoshitaka Yamamoto's book, The Pull of History. Great pun title, by the way. Nice. Uh, so philosopher Theophrastus, who was a successor of Aristotle, said in this quote, he's comparing amber to magnetic rocks. And so he goes, mm-hmm. since amber is also a stone, the power of attraction would belong to this too. The stone that attracts iron is the most remarkable and conspicuous example. That's magnetism. But this also is rare and occurs in few places. This stone too, amber, should be listed as having a similar power. And so way after that, in the 1600s, William Gilbert is not only able to distinguish that this amber effect is different from magnetism, Mm -hmm. but he decides to name this phenomena not after the English word for the stone, but after the ancient Greek word for amber, which is electron. No way. Oh. Shut up. Which he gives us then the word electricus. No way. Which would be the start of the long road of getting us to the fucking theory of electricity. <laughs> that's so cool. <gasps> that's wild. Isn't oh that fucking goodness. wild? God, it took them ages. They were rubbish. Yeah. They- <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea that electricity is like amber power like amber energy i know that's not what it is but like but that 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 was the early concept of it is Mm -hmm. so uh wild and i had no idea the fuck that's a that's a powerful etymology because electron 
of course, then would become electrons. So, but yeah. what we would learn then is that this effect wasn't because amber is like a special rock, but because its molecular structure is special. Basically, because amber is fossilized resin from trees, it has a very different molecular structure from other rocks because it's technically organic. Ah, um, and that okay, yeah. molecular structure makes it so that electrons and electricity doesn't pass through it easily, unlike metals. And so just like rubber and styrofoam, when you rub amber against something, it sort of holds on to all those electrons that it connects with, mm. that it comes in contact with, and it collects them and it becomes statically charged. Okay. Nice. Okay. Well, it's not that far off then. He said that amber is like attracts bits is what he was. Yeah. And that, and that was what made the static charge, which they didn't yes. obviously have any of the language for it. But like, it is kind of what happens, right? Ella, so the thing is, here's the wildest part. So we started off, right, thinking that these two kinds of rocks both have the same force, mm -hmm. magnetic rocks and, and this amber, right? And we think maybe it's the same thing. Then in the 1600s, we start to see, no, this rock is doing a magnetism. This rock is doing an electricity. Mm -hmm. But of course, as all the physics majors out there know, in 1873, we get a theory from James Maxwell that is called electromagnetism, which says that electricity and magnetism are actually two sides of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And as any physics major that has to endure their E&M class knows, this is the current theory we have. And so, just like with the miasma, there is like a sliver of truth in the original theory, which is wild. Getting some great affirmative nods from Caroline. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm really into this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one feels more coincidental to me than the miasma one. Yeah. Yeah, although, I mean, I'm sure there were some thoughts of, like, they can attract some similar things. Um, I guess But, of so, course, yeah. in terms of, like, the mechanism, you're totally right. That yeah. like, And I do love to think that, like, like the idea of, like, a, a physics major talking to an ancient Greek scientist who's like, these rocks do the same thing. And the physics major is just like, y yes? <laughs> <laughs> Technic okay, hold on. Do you know what an atom is? <laughs> it's like, you're right, but you have no idea why you're actually yeah, kind of right. Yeah. Um, but this next superseded theory is one that um, I hope you might know. This next superseded theory comes from Charles Darwin. Either of you want to guess what it is before I even say it? Um, I feel like it might be something misogynistic, knowing <laughs> Charles Darwin. I skipped a lot of those, by the way. Yeah. I don't know. Is it something to do with his theory of evolution? That something in that was... Well, it's a theory on the science he's most known for, geology. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I didn't know this, but many of Darwin's first papers and books were on geology. I think I knew this. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, he got around jack of all trades. Yeah, the the famous trips aboard the ship the Beagle were primarily for geographic and geological reasons. Mm. And also, this might be my new favorite quote from Darwin. Uh, according to Scientific American, while he was on one of the Beagle's journeys, quote. In a letter to his sisters, Darwin confessed that he, quote, literally could not sleep for thinking over my geology. Aww. That's real sweet. That's... Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine him, like, in, in the slump, in the sleeping bag with, like, his legs kicking in the air. He's like, oh, I can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that is nice. But, of course, this was still the 1800s. Uh, as Darwin himself also said, quote, Perhaps no science requires so little preparatory study as geology. Excuse <laughs> me. Oh my goodness. And sure, he might have thought this at first because, as Scientific American put it, one objective of the Beagle's journey was, quote, 
to gather geological evidence of the biblical flood. Oh, wow. <gasps> wow. A worldwide phenomena considered real by most geologists at the time. Yeah, wow. wow. Darwin was quite religious, right? My understanding. He was yeah, like, I think so. And I think also, you know, it's, I'm sure also people thought that like, if it wasn't like caused by God, that maybe they were talking about a old flood that was happened mm, for some natural yeah, yeah, reasons, yeah. right? So like mm. there is some, I think that's sort of why this is, um, for anyone who's like, that's wild that they would think that. Yeah. But anyway, while Darwin would find no evidence of such an event, uh, he did notice that these beaches that had these huge rising cliffs off of the the sand, basically like it would be like just like a sheer cliff. Mm -hmm. And even though these cliffs were so high up, they had similar fossils and seashells to the beach below. Yeah. Implying that the landmass had somehow risen up at some point in time. This is plate tectonics. It is. But do you know what the theory, that's the theory that we now have. But yeah, you know I, what, I have no idea what Darwin's theory is. I, I just know that's why cliffs exist. So. Yeah. <laughs> and mountains. His theory, he would theorize in a journal, quote, the whole has been raised from beneath the ocean into dry land by the action of one connected force. As he would write in another entry, he says, it resembles more the gradual expansion of some central mass. And while Darwin would later give up on this theory and uh, focus instead on some other bullshit that he wrote about, like birds or some shit, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. by the start of the 1900s, other geologists began to come to a similar conclusion that these fractures were caused by an expanding Earth. <gasps> wow, what a theory. So they thought the Earth was like a little dinosaur that you put in water and it like expands. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> <laughs> everything every theory can actually be <laughs> i'm a bit at a loss because i don't understand why an expanding earth would cause cliffs or did they think that like these two parts of land were connected and then so yes this does also address some of the like issues about like people finding like fossils on like continents that are separated by an ocean so if you imagine a chocolate egg that's like all the land mass of the primordial earth in this perfect sphere. And then if you like inflated a balloon inside of it, the chocolate would like fracture into bits and the spaces between would be the oceans. So they thought that all of the land masses were connected at some point. And then yes. as the earth was expanding, it created gaps in between mm. them. So rather yes. than thinking that everything was together and then shifted away from each other, which is what we think now, mm -hmm. they thought it was expanding. That's really interesting. Okay. I just... I still don't get it. I just don't get it. <laughs> right. Lots of big questions like where where that energy come from? Where that mass come so from? So uh, is it like the idea that there were like two sheer cliff faces? Yeah. Like I think as, you're, you're as even, the earth expanded it. I, you guys are even still like too tectonic pilled. I'm thinking that's, like. That's the thing. I think I'm so. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, like a yeah, push okay, That doesn't make off. any sense yeah, to me. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I'm so used to thinking of these as tectonics, like pushing things together and up. So I'm like, so opposite <laughs> over time there would be like variations to the theory where it's like people would be like well it's not like we're not talking about like actually it was like one land sphere people would be like well maybe it's just like partially that or like it, it's like a whole but it was like that was the dominant theory in geology at the time so as a paper by kathy barton summarized it quotes the ocean basins were supposedly stretched apart as the earth expanded with rifts opening in all directions and then all the water in the ocean poured into the rifts Guys, and that's why you're asking cliffs. too many questions no 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 <laughs> So the theory that would supersede this was called continental drift, uh, which is also what mm -hmm. gave us Pangea. Yeah. Uh, 
And then that was formalized into plate tectonics, which is what we know it as today. Mm -hmm. So spoiler alert, the Earth isn't expanding, uh, at least not like that. You know, I'm sure there's some like, you know, half a millimeter, blah, 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 every year. But what's causing these things is that the upper crust of the Earth is made up of these 16 plates that are like slowly shifting and rubbing and colliding and creating mountains and raised Earth like Darwin saw and also earthquakes and volcanoes. So like rather than being a balloon inside this chocolate egg, it's just that the center is like this hot, melty core. And so the outer hard, solid chocolate floats around the surface and slides around. And when two chocolate edges combine, they can smush and push up or push down. And this is what we know now. But even though this is what we know now, this was actually a very long fight. There's a famous story of geologist Marie Tharp, who worked with Bruce Heason in the mid-90s to discover the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is basically this like huge tectonic seam that connects to other ridges. Mm -hmm. And it basically outlines the tectonic plates across the whole planet. It was like a it was huge both physically and scientifically. It was like the smoking gun for plate tectonics, but it was under the ocean, which is why we couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. But as she recalls in her book written in 1999. When I showed what I found to Bruce, he groaned and said, it cannot be. It looks too much like continental drift. At the time, believing in the theory of continental drift was almost a form of scientific heresy. Almost everyone in the United States thought continental drift was impossible. Bruce initially dismissed my interpretation of the profiles as girl talk. <sighs> wow. Harsh. <laughs> but of course, in the end, Tharp won out. Uh, and she seems pretty happy with just having done the science. Uh, as she says at the end of the chapter, quote, establishing the Rift Valley and the mid-ocean ridge that went all the way around the world for 40,000 miles. That was something important. You could only do that once. You can't find anything bigger than that, at least not yeah. on this planet. <laughs> that's so, that's so good. It's like, I'm done now. There's, I can never do anything better There's, than this. You can't well. find anything bigger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is just so uh, fucking baller. And also a perfect segue into our last superseded theory, because we are going to look outside this planet for this theory, the theory that inspired this topic. Um, before we get to that, so far, I think Ella took miasma, Caroline took amber, and Ella took plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. Let's see if uh, Caroline can tie this up here. See if I can draw. Okay, bro. So the theory that inspired this topic is the planet Vulcan. Which, if you remember, I actually mentioned briefly on the podcast before. Yeah, it's not real. Correct. For the question, why do we keep discovering water on Mars? To sum up the history from what I mentioned in that episode, uh, at the turn of the 1900s, scientists believe there was a planet between Mercury and the Sun that they named Vulcan. So, so like the mnemonic would be, veritably, my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. Uh, or like Veronica, comma, my very educated mother, comma, just served us nine pizzas. Is that the normal mnemonic for you? My very educated mother just served us. Interesting. Wait, do you guys have a different one? My very easy method, just so you know, Pluto. <laughs> really? I don't know how this hasn't come up. How has this not come up? Maybe it hasn't. I've forgotten. No, this has never come up before. It's not a very good mnemonic because the end of it's all the letters are wrong. You have to spell yeah. it's U with a U and no with an N. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, no, yeah. that's, that's not that good. Is, it's the one I learned and it worked. So my, uh, my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. But yeah, so you have to add a V at the, the start of the mnemonic. Yeah. But what is this? What is Vulcan 
What is the theory that is... So that's exactly it, right? The reason I brought up Vulcan in the previous episode was just to, like, basically be like, haha, isn't it so silly? Sometimes we come up with, with like, wacky theories. That's science. Yeah. But I never actually talked about why people believed in the theory of Vulcan because I didn't okay. know at the time. And I finally did some research. And it's so fucking interesting. Is it something to do with, like spots on the sun or something like that, that? was one so that was okay. one aspect of it so the first important thing to consider at the time is that it's very hard to observe things close to the sun right mm -hmm. even observing mercury is very difficult because it's so close that the brightness of the sun just like washes it out mm. and so back then the best time to observe mercury was during an eclipse which obviously makes observations a lot more tricky when you have this limited time frame. So not only does Mercury have to be on our side of the sun, mm -hmm. but there has to be an eclipse, but at the same time, like you can't have the moon blocking it. So, mm. and and yeah, to your point, Caroline, some people saw things that then just turned out to be sunspots. Yeah. But there's an even bigger reason why we believed in Vulcan besides sunspots. So in the 1800s, there's this hotshot astronomer and mathematician named Urban Le Verrier. Brilliant name. In 1840, he was mathing out the orbit of Mercury, basically making this like table of where he thought it was going to be to track it and predict where it would be in the sky, um, taking into account the like mass of the sun, the planets and their orbits. And when the next eclipse rolls around, he looks up and Mercury is slightly off from where his math said it should be. So he's like, must have goofed up my math. Oh, well, that's fine. Well, Ella... You fucking got it. <laughs> I'm going to continue on with my story. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Ella, Ella this whole time was, was like finger on mouth, like thinking, trying to get, the, get that hint in. You know what? Maybe I'll do. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll bleep it and then I'll, I'll say it at the end yeah, so that, yeah. you show, yeah, show so that people can be, can, it's like, um, like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. You can see if yeah, you can okay. get it. So uh, he's like, you know, uh, Mercury isn't where he thought it would be. So but he's like, I must have just goofed up my math. Well, then a few years later, he did the same thing for Uranus. He mathed out where it should be in the sky. It wasn't where he predicted, except this time he's like, my math is solid, right? In fact, my math works perfectly if we take into account an imaginary mass behind Uranus. And that's how the next year we found fucking Neptune. Hi. Oh, shit. Okay. When they finally observed Neptune, it was one degree off from where he predicted it would be. Oh, my God. To add to the drama, Le Verrier just beat out to publication another scientist who was making the same calculations at the same time. <gasps> and some there's like debate about who technically gets it first. But mm -hmm. like the people who observe it first use Le Verrier's math. Um, but now with this under his belt... He turns back to Mercury, does his math again, and he's like, doesn't math out. He's like, listen, guys, I'm, I'm the Neptune guy. We, we got to check this out now. And so, obviously, just like Uranus, there must be some planet, some mass that we can't see in the brightness of the sun that's affecting Mercury's orbit. Mm. And, you know, it's the Neptune guy saying this, so people go searching for it. Except this time, no one finds anything. Eclipse after eclipse after eclipse. It's like lots of claims by people having seen it, but like no one can verify and there's no smoking gun here. Okay. Until 1919, when astronomers Eddington, Dyson, and Davidson looked up during an eclipse, except they weren't looking for Vulcan, they were looking for stars because they were trying to confirm a theory that was hot off the presses from 1915 by a then 36-year-old scientist. And that scientist 
was Albert Einstein. <laughs> and then everybody clapped. And then everybody <gasps> clapped. I guess, I guess it does feel good to do like an actual Einstein name drop. Yeah. Like an actually earned Einstein cameo jump scare. So rather than try to look for Vulcan, Eddington and team were looking to see if this cluster of stars in the constellation Taurus matched Einstein's brand spanking new theory of general relativity, which, of course, we just we just learned about mm -hmm. from Ella's topic on gravitational yeah. waves. I don't think I would have guessed correctly if I hadn't been thinking about it so recently. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into it, but I didn't fucking know either. So basically, if general relativity was true, then the oddity in Mercury's orbit could be caused not by another planet, but just by the curvature of space-time from the mass of the sun that is not mm -hmm. taken into account in classical physics at the time, in Newtonian physics. And when, when Einstein was first working on his theory before Eddington and team did this observation to confirm it, he realized that his theory could solve this problem too. Uh, science historian Tom Levinson said that when Einstein realized that like general relativity could solve this mercury problem, quote, he said he felt actual palpitations of his heart and that he was so excited that he couldn't work for three days. He was so overcome with joy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so sweet. Nice. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just like it, they feel kind of like un almost unrelated in some ways because one's looking for a planet and one's looking to change how the concept of physics works entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's wild. Um, the 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 ripples. Uh, yeah, that this would yeah, cause yeah. The, the gravitational wave. The, I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> ha -ha. And so when Eddington and team find this evidence of general relativity, as a paper by Gilmore and Tosh Peabody put it, this experiment, quote, established general relativity as a valid theory of space-time and made Einstein famous. Wow. Amazing. And so the theory that superseded the planet Vulcan was fucking general relativity. <laughs> And the fact that this isn't just like a thing that happened with general relativity is like one of the things of general relativity. There's actually mm. like a, let me see if I can find the book. Some of this came from an interview with the author of the book, The Hunt for Vulcan and How Albert Einstein Destroyed the Planet, Discovered Relativity and Deciphered the Universe. Wow. <laughs> so like this is like a, a key moment in relativity and the fact that I fucking did a question topic where I mentioned Vulcan and then the next fucking episode Ella talks about general <laughs> relativity and yeah. I didn't make the connection because I didn't fucking know is wild. Uh, and also why I, I was like, I have to do this immediately because we've mm -hmm, never mm -hmm. had this like thing so recently in such, in such, a, a, yeah. such a connection. My topic superseded yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and also I'm surprised no one in the, in the Discord, I'm sure there's like some listener who's like, Wow, why are you guys talking about this? You have this perfect setup. Um, but it, it's also the thing that's interesting is like, it's, right, it's easy to think of these defunct theories as being like flat earth or spontaneous generation, right? But often with miasma and amber theory, there is like a surprising amount of intuition that is kind of right. Um, and other times, this chain of theories is so hidden and so unintuitive to us that you don't even realize it like what happened with our podcast itself and on top of that these stories of superseding theories are also filled with so much fucking drama and beef yeah. uh, a ton that i didn't have time to put in but even more than that there is some really human joy that we often miss in our histories of science i didn't 
even do this on purpose. But when I was wrapping this up, I realized I had put, you know, a quote from Darwin being unable to sleep with excitement. I have um, Marie Tharp's like mic drop moment and Einstein's heart palpitations. And just like these changing and superseding theories, that joy is also a real part of science that is fun to remember. Yeah. Aww. And congratulations to our winner, Dr. Ella Hover. <laughs> yeah. Most importantly. Yeah. Hang my head in shame, as you should. Caroline was dancing. <laughs> 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 that was lovely, Tom. Lovely, lovely to hear some of these things. I really had never heard of a lot of these. Yeah, me too. But it just goes to show that everything we know about the world right now is built on so many mistakes yeah yeah <laughs> and it, that's how things will continue to go that's science baby science baby and here we see in its natural habitat the wild grain sitting on a doorstep caroline what are you doing outside my house and here we see the wild grain's only natural predator man <sighs> guys i know it's called wild grain but for the last time i'm not going to say this again it's not a wild animal it's the first ever bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads fresh pastas and artisanal pastries the wild grain maintains an internal body temperature below freezing but when subject to heat, the wild grain begins its metamorphosis in as little as 25 minutes. Listen, guys, do you want some of these or not? I got the new large wild grain box with 12 items because I figured you guys would do something like this. I have some mini sourdough baguettes and strawberry rhubarb turnovers. Ah, pygmy sourdough baguettes. <laughs> ah, yes. Strawberry rhubarb turnovers. That one just stays the same. <laughs> Just, just the other day, I had the strawberry rhubarb turnovers, and I put some banana ice cream, cold banana ice cream on top, Ooh, and having fun. a crispy flake, and the hot strawberries, and the cold ice cream. Highly, re highly recommend. <laughs> Would he say that? David Attenborough, highly recommend the strawberry rhubarb turnovers. <laughs> to clarify, turnovers. this is not endorsed by David Attenborough. Sorry. Just... Dan Daniel Attenborough. <laughs> you sound like Voldemort. <laughs> Join us, Ella. Do the voice. And for a limited time, you can play so bad. <laughs> you, 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 you can get $30 off the first box. Plus free croissants in every box. <laughs> free croissants in croissants. every box. And 30% off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash let's learn. That's wildgrain.com slash let's learn. Or use the promo code let's learn at checkout. I'm Yucky Jessica. I'm Chuck Crudsworth. And this is Terrible. A podcast where we talk about things we hate that are awful. Today we're discussing Wonderful, a podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. Hosts Rachel and Griffin McElroy, a real-life married couple. Yuck. Discuss a wide range of topics. Music, video games, poetry, snacks. But I hate all that stuff. I know you do, Yucky Jessica. It comes out every Wednesday, the worst day of the week, wherever you download your podcasts. 
for our next topic, we're talking Fiona the baby hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo. I hate this little hippo. So today's question is, why is TB still a thing? So this has actually been on my list for a while, my list of questions really? to do on the show. Yeah, but I thought I might as well do it now while it was very relevant. Yeah, totally. Due mm-hmm. to some shenanigans that John Green <laughs> has been getting up to on Twitter and online. I assume you guys know about the shenanigans. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I've been loving that whole... I assume you're going to go into it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool. You, if you're not aware of what's going on, we are going to get back to it. But first, let's begin somewhere else. And first, simply, I'm going to ask you, what is TB? Tuberculosis? Oh, wait. Now I'm scared. I'm going to assume something and be wrong. Yeah. Tuberculosis. Yep. It's tuberculosis. Perfect. What causes it? The tuberculosis virus. I don't know, actually. Virus? Interesting. I actually don't know if it's a vector. Uh, no, I don't think bacteria. it is a virus. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. No. That oh, fuck. It's, oh, it's, shit. Oh, goddammit. It. Fuck. It's a bacteria. <laughs> Sorry, John. Is it a bacteria? It's a bacteria. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. It's caused by myobacterium tuberculosis. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what cool. does that, what does it do? What does it cause? Is it a respiratory issue? No. Yes? Yeah. It's dancing. i just have like images in my head of people becoming very weak of having tuberculosis and like you know like like, frail i do remember this and then like being sent away to to, like experience the fresh air to make that better you know yeah i mean that's not gonna help you but yeah it's not gonna help was tuberculosis called consumption is that the same thing (gasps) it was called consumption okay and we will get into that that history a little bit too First of all, tuberculosis itself. So myobacterium tuberculosis, it mainly affects the lungs. So things like chest pain, coughing, coughing up blood are, are common yeah, symptoms. Yeah. But it does affect multiple systems. It can affect the gastrointestinal mm, tract, mm. the nervous system, the reproductive system, the liver. It's a really Holy multi-talented shit. little bacteria. <clears throat> oh, good for it. It's a bit of an overachiever, huh? <laughs> yeah. Something I find really fascinating about myobacterium tuberculosis is that it has no known environmental reservoir. So, for example, what? Yeah. So, for example, the virus that causes COVID Uh circulates in bats and other other animals. Yersinia pestis, which causes the plague, is carried by small mammals and their fleas. Right. But myobacterium tuberculosis does not have an environmental reservoir like that. There is animal versions of TB, like um, bovine TB, but that doesn't affect humans. That's wild. Yeah. So basically, if these other viruses, bacteria, if they're not in humans, they can still be circulating in the wild and then reinfect Mm -hmm. humans. TB does not have this reservoir that we know of. So it's basically mastered the art of survival through human transmission. So like in theory, we should be able to eradicate it if it only impacts humans. Or is the implication that because it has managed to survive on humans, it's like very fucking good at it. And so it makes it harder. Uh-huh. I don't know, but yeah, yeah you know. maybe. <laughs> well, this is this is the question. If only one of us had research. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that's where we should stop because I'm not sure. So yeah. <laughs> oh, miscellaneous time. Is yeah. It? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't research this one, guys. I was hoping you would know. <laughs> stop. That's what the question is, right? You ask, and then we yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so it it has no known environmental reservoir. It's just been spreading through humans and it has survived for a long time like this because do you know how old TB is? (sighs) At least... Thousands and thousands. I was going to say a thousand years old, 
But also, then how would we know? Is the question. I would say, I'll say like five thousand. Five thousand. Oh, okay. Five thousand. No, five thousand. I suppose Tom wins that as the closest, because the oh, earliest no. evidence is it really, really old. Well, <laughs> you've got to think it has to be. It can only be as old as humans are mm -hmm. in this case. Still pretty, pretty long though. That's still yeah, <laughs> quite a window. Well, we know humans are somewhere like modern day humans are somewhere like twenty to thirty thousand years old. It's not that old. The earliest evidence of TB was found in the DNA of the bones of a mother and baby excavated from a Neolithic village no that was submerged off the coast way. of Israel. So these remains were 9,000 years old. <gasps> no fucking way. Yeah. So this is an ancient disease. Wow. Okay. And it's still going. And that's that's just a lower bound, right? Like That's the oldest that we know of. It could be yeah. older. That's nuts. But it, it obviously it didn't reach its peak until much later. Sure, sure. Yeah. And this is linked to how it spread because... Right, right, right. So when do you think TB was at its peak based on how it spread? My answer's like the 1600s. Yeah, I like feel that like kind of time. that's where it at least feels like in the in literature to be like... Um, yeah, totally. And I guess... We are still in a peak right now, I will say that. Oh, wow. Like, okay. We're still in a pretty high point. I'm not yeah. entirely yeah. sure of the if it's the highest... Mm -hmm. the, this when it got really high first one of the reasons i think that we're seeing i don't know if this is true this is just my own speculation but one of the reasons i think that we're seeing it from nine thousand years ago is because this is when humans started to live you know civilization started we started oh, to live in groups okay yeah, and yeah, that yeah. would make a lot of sense for how tb spread because it mm -hmm. peaked it started to get really big in the 19th and 20th centuries with industrialization oh, okay oh that makes mm. sense yeah, so yeah, you know yeah. cities are becoming they're not just people living together cities are becoming overcrowded they have poor sanitation people yeah. are packed together they're coughing they're sneezing sounds pretty familiar uh, to things that happen today <laughs> yeah. all that miasma yeah. <laughs> yeah so it became the primary cause of death among the urban working classes particularly in europe oh my at God. the time that's wow. crazy so yeah. in in the uk alone nearly four million people died as a result <gasps> of tube tb from over about 60 year period which is actually still Whoa. lower than now but oh wow yeah Whoa. but then things got weird in Europe and in the UK especially. <laughs> because I don't know if I like when stories get weird, especially infectious yeah. disease. Well, maybe, but let's see. Whenever Ella says it, I'm a little bit scared, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if Ella thinks it's weird. It's because, and Caroline kind of already hinted to this, a woman being sent away to the country, weak mm. and feverish, because TB got romanticized. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, ha I uh -huh. do know of this, yeah. Again, that literature sort of storytelling around it almost yeah yeah, yeah. So i was about i was gonna ask you know what it's called in the 19th century but you already said it was consumption because it caused Ding. your body to waste away wow and this was seen as something desirable you know it's so fucked. oh my goodness That's so wow. it's it's that imagery that caroline brought off of a pale fragile young yeah. upper class woman yeah coughing up into a yeah into coughing a little, blood uh, into a handkerchief in a tiny little hand like a little lacy handkerchief she's yeah. delicately strewn across her chaise lounge you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's beautiful imagery you know you have it's the red cheeks and the feverish glow of consumption yes, yeah, yeah, was yeah. all the rage and there was even poetry written about it especially in england wow. so poet john keats after seeing blood on his handkerchief following a coughing fit said i cannot be deceived in that color that drop of blood is my death warrant I must die. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. It's like it's like 
I'm trying to extricate it because there is some aspect of this that is like an interesting confrontation with mortality mm-hmm. and, 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 and a very real social thing that was happening at the time, right? If, if, so much, if it was the leading cause of death. But then that feels separate from the romanticization. Yeah, and, and it's very like, um, it's very weird, like you said. It's an important point you're making, but the important point to make there is this was, you know what? I'll, I'll, say, I'll say afterwards. Cool. So another quote from poet Lord Byron said, this is a mad one. How pale I look. I should like, I think, to die of consumption. Because Okay, yeah, no, wait, never mind. Because then the women would all say, see that poor Byron, how interesting he looks in dying. <gasps> <laughs> oh no, oh buddy. That's so... Wow. And going back to Tom's point then on kind of passing out the romanticism and the leading cause of death and like Mm. the reason why poets like Keats and Byron and other upper class people could romanticize this is because for them it wasn't as bad an issue. Oh. This is a that's this a was a this point. is a disease of the poor. Right, right. And you said right, and the it was the leading cause of death for the urban working class, you said. Okay. It, to them it was not a romantic disease. It was a mass killer for millions gotcha. of people who did and are still now suffering the effects of TB. Yeah, okay, that sucks. Because can you guess how many people TB still kills today? Ooh. Tom, stop dancing. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, fuck. Hi, folks. Editor Tom here. I just checked with Ella, and this is the joke that she had written down in the first topic. Anyway, back to the show. <laughs> is it in the millions every year? Or is it lower? It's, a, it's in the millions, yeah. It's I was going to say 500,000, but it's... At least double that. Okay. It's a total of 1.6 million wow. died from TB in 2021, according to the World Health Organization. Wow. And oh. the bulk of this burning is in is in developing countries. So India, yeah. Indonesia, yeah. China, Nigeria, Pakistan, and South Africa accounted for 60% of TB deaths wow. in 2015, oh at least. God. It's probably similar now. Um, around 35% of TB mortality is in people with HIV AIDS mm-hmm. because of their weakened immune system. I got. I will also say, I, I like... All of those countries being 60% also still makes... That's still a lot in that 40% to be across the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is pretty widespread within those. Like India, Indonesia, China, Nigeria, Pakistan, South Africa. It's still pretty spread across Asia and Africa, those high burden countries. But there are other high burden countries like russia who are mm. not who are not considered mm. developing countries that's a medium in- income country Why? there are some positives here i don't want to like be th- there has been a 22 percent drop in global tb mortality from 2000 through to 2015 holy okay. wow that's... Um, and it's still declining yeah. mm-hmm. but it's not gone yeah yeah and now we know a bit about the disease and how it's spread we can start to ask why is it not gone yet? Why is TB still a thing? Yeah, I again because of because of John Green, I'm aware that like it's still around, but I think even he admits that like part of the reason he became so fascinated with it was because he assumed when he first heard about it that it was a disease of old, a thing of the past, that it wasn't yeah. a yeah, consumption yeah, absolutely. thing. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I decided to do this topic is because I talked to a TB researcher. Oh, hmm, amazing! As part of my job, and he said 
to me he said people think this is a disease of old but it's not and that yeah. and that was yeah. like you know what that's totally right i was thinking that mm-hmm. when you hear it i think you kind of think you know because sample the plague still exists um bubonic plague about a few people a year in the entire world still die of the plague and in my head that was what tb was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but it's not it's overwhelmingly massive killer yeah wow so now getting into that question why is tb still a thing i'm going to kind of feed you one of the answers first because there are you know there are several answers to why it's not a simple Mm -hmm. one issue yeah well kind of we'll get there but um (laughs) (laughs) the first one is by asking do you know how tb is treated no think about what it is antibacterial medication Mm -hmm. of some kind um it's it's a bacteria so it's antibiotics antibiotics yeah yeah it's usually a four to six month course of multiple antibiotics oh wow that's pretty intense it is intense it's a long course um it can go Mm -hmm. up to 21 months of the course but it is just but it's also not it's not yeah it's treatable yeah it's cheap antibiotics are cheap reasonably cheap so why would a disease that is treated by antibiotics be such an issue antibiotic resistance yes there we go so i will say along with issues like climate change some scientists believe antibiotic resistance you know when bacteria develop develop the ability to defeat the drugs that normally kill them is one of the greatest threats facing humanity right now i've heard that quite before yeah 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 yeah. one day i'd probably like to do a whole topic on that but for now i will just say that tb is generally resistant to several antibiotics anyway oh Mm. shoot okay Mm. yeah and there are strains of TB which are resistant even to TB-specific antibiotics. No way. These are called multidrug-resistant TB and extremely multidrug-resistant TB. <laughs> well, it does what it says on the tin. That name gives you so much hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These last two are often acquired because of things like inadequate antibiotic dosage and incomplete rounds of antibiotics, as well mm-hmm. as other things. Mm-hmm. But around 500,000 people have multidrug resistant TB. Wow. That's a lot. That's a huge proportion of people. Yeah. I will say here, when you are prescribed antibiotics and the doctor tells you to finish them, even after you feel better, do it. Always finish <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Do not give them to someone else. Yeah. Do not put them in your cupboard to take at a later date. Take them as yeah. prescribed. There are other reasons multidrug resistant TB crops up. And also it's it's very rarely like I don't want to put any blame on the people who have this yeah because there are lots of factors that play into this there are a few other reasons why TB the bacteria itself is a tricky bacteria for example it's pretty tenacious it has the ability to survive under extreme conditions like extreme acidity or alkalinity uh, low oxygen Mm. it can survive inside the immune cells that should eat it as well oh no oh no oh that's actually awful okay yeah great and there is one another huge problem that makes tb the bacteria very difficult i'll give you a clue and see if you can get it the clue is just mononucleosis i'll I'll give you another one chicken pox and shingles is it like a young person related to something with like young people with i can see why you're thinking that i'll i'm gonna try I, so what I'm, I've just learned is that Can you, you give us a hint that isn't other infectious diseases that we should know about. Yeah, is that you guys don't understand how those diseases work. Can yeah. you do like a computer yeah. science analogy for me, please? Maybe one day I'll, I'll cover um, herpes viruses. They both were because oh. they're they're um. they're pretty pretty dastardly. But I mentioned that 1.6 million people died from TB in 2021. But an estimated 1.8 billion people. Oh, 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 is it dormant? Can it be dormant in you? Yes. Uh. Wow. 
okay. There we go. Exactly. It's called it's called latency. Just to finish what I was saying, an estimated 1.8 billion people, about a quarter of the world's population, are infected with mybacterium tuberculosis. Wow. How many? 1.8 billion. Billion. Whoa. That's because it can go dormant, like you say, or, or have a, it has a latent phase. So this is like the varicella zoster virus, which causes chickenpox, then goes latent, goes into your neurons, and then causes right. shingles. Or the Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mononucleosis, but then goes latent and then comes back again and again. I didn't know that about either of those. Yeah. Wow. So myobacterium tuberculosis can have a latent phase like these viruses. This is where, yeah, it's lying in wait. You should have no signs or symptoms that you are carrying it. So fortunately, TB cannot be spread whilst it's latent. Okay, that's, that's something. Because that would be disastrous. But it will become active in 5 to 10% of the people who are carrying it. Wow. So you have this kind of huge disease burden with latent TB, but you don't know who it's going to become active in. So if you've got this insane burden of people silently carrying TB, why might this be an issue? Having enough of the treatment to go around like how do you pick and choose who to treat that and for testing and yeah yeah yep. okay so i was gonna say the clue the first clue was this is where tb starts being a problem of humans or resources yeah yeah so testing we'll start with that because if you think of covid what did you do if you thought you'd been exposed even if you hadn't shown any symptoms you test jam it up your nose yeah yeah so diagnosis and that was a huge thing at the beginning of the pandemic as well was that there wasn't a diagnosis because yeah, people yeah. didn't yeah, yeah there wasn't an easy way or you do pcr test mm, mm-hmm. and that took time and money how do you go about diagnosing potentially 1.8 billion people carrying tb the first line of diagnostics for TB are skin and blood tests. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, oh. that's quite an intense thing already then. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty intense. And, and one issue here is that these tests cannot tell you if TB is active or not. Mm. It can just tell you mm-hmm. if you have it. Mm. So you would then have to go on to mm. further tests, like sputum samples and chest x-rays. Wow, oh, okay, yeah. And this brings us to our biggest issue. The number one, I think the number one reason why TB is so dominant, which is... Any guesses? It's a single word. Capitalism? Close. Money. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Blood tests, skin tests, x-rays. They all cost monies. They all cost monies. Yeah. <laughs> they monies. all cost money. <laughs> so many monies. monies. Communities, <laughs> communities with low resources and limited healthcare infrastructure, which are the ones most affected by TB, right, right. struggle to quickly diagnose people, yeah. even with active TB, let alone latent infections. Mm. Money holds back tackling TB in a meaningful way on almost every level wow right. yeah so professor novel chegu who leads the tb diagnostic biomarker research laboratory at Stellenbosch university in south africa is in the process of developing a new tool for rapidly diagnosing tb so they nice. basically okay. validated proteins in the blood so a signature if you like which indicates if you have active tb and they're now working on turning that that signature into a finger prick blood-based test which can mm-hmm. detect the proteins very cool. rapidly similar to how you would use a glucometer to measure insulin levels in diabetes oh, okay yeah so this is amazing yeah. to give a bit of context sputum tests 
for diagnosing TB, basically you take your sputum, you culture, if there is the bacteria in there, culture okay. that in a lab. Yeah. But TB is very, very slow growing. So it can take weeks mm, before mm. you get the results back. Oh, wow. yeah, that's not... <laughs> Novell's test should be almost instantaneous comparatively. Wow. wow. Okay, yeah. So this means a person won't be leaving without treatment and spreading right. the disease further. It also avoids the need for laboratory infrastructure, trained mm -hmm. scientists, healthcare professionals who would be drawing blood and doing the tests, which yeah. are often mm -hmm. not available in poor rural communities. But there's one big issue. He can't get the funding to support his work. <gasps> You're joking. No. Jeez. What? Yeah. And that is that because of this idea that it's like an like it's not a problem anymore in many people's eyes? Is that what it uh, is? Or no, it's money. <laughs> oh, it's, it's still money. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I, I assume if it is if it affects mostly poorer people and countries, then why would what? you why yeah. would you invest yeah, in wh that where's where does the money come from mm -hmm. it's not as if having an, an a healthier planet and world and people fundamentally lifts all boats and makes the world a better place and even if your money focused will eventually come back your way around or anything like that that can't be it doesn't come back quick enough yeah yeah exactly no novel said in an interview uh, for the yeah. bbc tb is a disease of the poor so from a financial point of view, if you're investing in TB, you are not going to get much returns out of your investment. So that is not a great incentive for funding that work. That fucking... Wow. Was that in the quote saying... Did they in the quote say return on investment? Mm -hmm. That fucking sucks. I oh hate my that. goodness. That's... This is Nobel. He's like acknowledging that that's not a good thing. Right. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But but even, even to, to hear a, a researcher in that field use that framing that right? someone who yeah, knows it yeah. is happening yeah. say that is like yeah so that ultimately they Ooh. they rely on charity funding but it's very limited and a lack of investment in tb research to you know have innovative research towards this disease is a really huge problem where else might that be a problem where else might money be an issue you've already said it is this the the john green of it all yes <laughs> is this about patents yeah it's about treatment right yeah. so this is this is where john green comes in you may have seen last month John posting furiously on Twitter about the pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson and their TB drug, Saturo, um, which I'm going to call it by its generic name, which is Bedaquiline. Mm -hmm. So back in 2012, Bedaquiline was the first new class of TB drug to be approved by the FDA in 45 years. <gasps> Holy shit. Wow. Okay. Got it. Wow. It do be slow moving. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, it's a very slow moving research area because there's no... Uh, money in it there's right there's no money in it yeah so bedaquiline is specifically good for multi-drug resistant tb oh okay oh cool it works by stopping myobacterial atb production so their energy production which leads yeah. to the bacteria dying cool um it's super effective around 77 percent positive treatment outcomes in people with multi-drug resistant tb that's huge and okay yeah on multi-resistant yeah yeah, yeah. That's the, those 500,000 people a year, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And J&J, &J, Johnson Johnson, owns the patent. Yay. Which means they can set the price. Oh, no. I'm hearing return on investment. Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. In low-income countries, the cost for a six-month course of this drug is $400, which might not sound like much, but you're considering this is affecting very, very poor communities. Yeah. yeah. That It's not even that these people wouldn't necessarily be making enough to pay for it, but to have that lump sum of cash to pay for that treatment yeah, then and yeah, there yeah, yeah. 
is like an right. almost an impossibility point. for many people. I can't even imagine. And that was only if the country was eligible to buy the drug through something called the Global Drug Facility, which is an organization run by the Stop TB Partnership that supplies TB drugs to low and middle income countries. So if you are in a high or income country or middle income country or even a low one that doesn't meet this standards, a six month course in a high income country yeah. can cost thirty thousand dollars the six month <gasps> course Ooh, that i do know that i understand that uh, wow and again this is this is going to be affecting mostly poor people even in high mm -hmm. income countries right yeah and also i said it that's a six month course some people need a 20 month course yeah. of this yeah so you're oh, talking man. four times the amount that you're paying right but like I said, low-income countries are the most effective. So let's look at that maths, right? Mm -hmm. It costs around $2.19 per pill okay. in low-income countries, which is a massively high cost for an anti what is an antibiotic. Got it, okay. Um, they can sell, Johnson & Johnson can sell this for as little as 25 cents per pill <gasps> and still make a huge profit. Yeah. And still make money. Yeah. This is not even breaking even. This is still making a profit. A quarter. Because yeah. my other thinking is like, surely if they were to do that and more people had access to it, then more people would spend more money on it and they would probably make more of a profit anyway. Yeah, you've got to think how many people are yeah. infected with TB that they that would be able to afford the medication. So they would make, mm -hmm. they would still be making this. It's insane. They would at least be making the same amount of money, if not more. So wait, can you explain that how that process works from two nineteen to a quarter? Um, there's a research paper where someone figured it out. I don't know the the maths. I don't know how that works. That in the show notes, if you want to know exactly how someone figured that out, someone published a, a study about it, including nice. not just for badaquiline, but for lots of other drugs that people oh, are oh boy. are making and are like an unmoral profit on yeah yeah imagine getting paid to save people's lives and then being like actually i'd like to get paid more actually this isn't yeah. fulfilling enough to both save lives yeah. and make money i actually could use a little more isn't that fucking insane? especially given how much johnson and johnson already like they sell so many right. other drugs yeah, as exactly. well they johnson make johnson so own, much money own fucking everything they yeah. like yeah. it's crazy how much like, money they would make it actually be that much of a problem for them to sell it at break even price no it wouldn't it's not even break even that's the thing yeah but i will say yeah. one of the justifications that pharmaceutical companies use for charging more for drugs than production costs is mm -hmm. they're saying that it's for r d costs sure so years and years and years of development goes into a lot of these drugs but i believe that this research study showed that that that's they took that into account yeah this is nothing wow. to, this I is oh, this really? is profit after the fact that that R&D has been uh, factored in. It's literal yacht money. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, they're charging about seven times more per pill than they need to be. So it's no surprise then that despite its high efficacy and an estimated 440,000 new cases of multi-drug resistant TB per year, <laughs> only 40,000 people have received bedequiline since it's been approved in 2012. Since 2012? Yeah. 40,000 in 11 years, give or take. Neither of us are dancing for this That's one. Not, yeah. <laughs> That's... Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah. I'm just in shock at that. Wow. So, yeah, this is an issue, right? But Johnson & Johnson's patent on bedaquiline ran out on Tuesday, the 18th of July, 2023. 
Mm-hmm. Hooray! We think <laughs> cheaper drugs. This is good. Yes. Wow. If only it was that simple. Do you guys know what evergreening is? No. I don't think I do actually. Yeah, it's when it's when they for every patent that that's dissolved, they plant an evergreen tree, uh, and the yeah. world becomes a slowly better place. That's, isn't that nice? That's lovely. Is it like grandfathering in a, a, a patent into or or making it extend? I assume it is mm-hmm. about extending a patent, basically, but it's this quite insidious practice in the pharmaceutical industry oh where drug companies they make minor tweaks to a drug very that do almost nothing in order to oh. justify extending a patent oh it's what has been done with insulin for over a hundred years now that's why insulin is still under patent i know this is like a wild comparison but this is what they apparently used to do on the disney channel that's the reason why you had so many shows that i hope this helps one some millennial or gen z understand this metaphor but apparently uh, someone who used to work on the disney channel show said that like the reason why it would it would be like sweet life of zach and cody and then suddenly it'd be sweet life of zach and cody on deck is because if they change the name of the show then they can restart the rates that they have to pay their actors they can start at like the baseline rate interesting so what i was gonna say is from the disney thing is um these classic stories like cinderella and so white these films that have been around for a long time the reason they release them release them on video every couple of years as like a new edition is to extend their pattern on them yeah I, i don't know if it's called a pattern in this case but yeah that's what they do I, I think, like something copyright like something like that yeah. yeah also hilarious that we can come up with two examples from disney alone but you know in the pharmaceutical industry this isn't just watching a movie it is to put it simply <laughs> evil insidious selfish <laughs> yeah like mm-hmm. literally life and death it's yeah. literally life and death and that's what j and j have been doing and this is where john green comes in So in his YouTube video on the topic, he said, when you attempt to evergreen a patent, even though you know the decision will cost hundreds of thousands of human lives over the next four years, you're tarnishing your corporate reputation. He starts to put Mm. pressure on J&J then, especially on Twitter, where he'd obviously sent thousands of people to bother them. Yeah. Rightly so. And basically the pressure put on Johnson Johnson by John Green by his followers and also by many excellent advocacy groups that had already been working yeah, on this yeah. Yeah. yeah caused them to put out a statement where they said they had already made a deal to collaborate with the stop tv partnership to allow the production of the generic version of their saturo so bedaquiline which can be produced much cheaper but specifically to a group of low-income countries so this is a win mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. they did also between that put out uh, a very gross statement that was, oh, I forget the exact wording of it, that they all made fun of for being... I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's like, uh, people have been saying... That. Yeah, but yeah. There was something that like people have been falsely... Uh, implying oh, that we yeah. have, we are, you know, trying to make money. And then John Green rep- responded, which was like, I'm no, no one's implying anything. I'm saying it outright. And I'm like, yeah, yeah John, go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I found it. What was... It is false to suggest, as some recently have, that our patents are being used to prevent access to Sertura bedaquiline. Which is part of this whole pressure campaign by not just Strong Green, but many people over many years. This is a win, mm-hmm. but it's not enough. And I'm not saying John Green's saying that he's been very good and being very vocal about like, this is still not good enough. There are still 17 countries with high burden of multi-drug resistant TB, which do not have the generic access through that partnership. And J&J is still pushing for extended patents in many countries. More than that, all areas of eradicating or controlling TB, research, diagnosis, treatment, 
are all criminally underfunded because they mm -hmm. are not mm. profitable. That is why TB is still a thing. It's so it's so interesting and wild, Ella. Like this would be so much of a cooler story if because there it, there clearly is a ton of amazing science happening and like a mm. ton of researchers who are willing to sacrifice like so much of their life and time and energy to work on this as as the, the people you've mentioned and i'm sure i, I, I want to dig through these sources because I'm, I'm very curious as, right? especially yeah. that chart doing the math on the the money of this but and then it's it sucks that then the final boss on all of this though is also just like and now we own that for some reason because we can own that science yeah. or something like that so it, it 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 has such the potential to be an amazing story because again like you said there are legitimate challenge i was gonna jump the gun and think that the only challenge was capitalism but there are yeah there is si like scientific mm -hmm. issues mm -hmm. why this yeah. is a problem like i said tb has been around for a really long time very successfully we er yeah, we eradicated yeah. more or less you know the plague and yeah and other dis diseases like it so it's not like it's impossible to get rid of these things mm -hmm. but tb has its own issues that people yeah. need to put research into but it's just made 10 times a hundred times worth yeah, yeah. by yeah. the fact that it is being looked at through this lens of profit and i'm just going to end this section with a message to johnson and johnson's leadership and executives <laughs> fuck you <laughs> fuck you yeah that's it. Yep. Do the right thing. Hey, when you listen to podcasts, it really just comes down to whether or not you like the sound of everyone's voices. My voice is one of the sounds you'll hear on the podcast Dr. Game Show. And this is the voice of co-host and fearless leader Joe Firestone. This is a podcast where we play games submitted by listeners and we play them with callers over Zoom we've never spoken to in our lives. So that is basically the concept of the show. Pretty chill. So take it or leave it, bucko. And here's what some of the listeners have to say. It's funny, wholesome, and it never fails to make me smile. I just started listening and I'm already binging it. I haven't laughed this hard in ages. I wish I'd discovered it sooner. You can find Dr. Game Show on MaximumFun.org. All righty then. Shall we go from one like super depressing story to another super depressing story <laughs> just oh, to round yay! this episode off? Uh, yeah, so for my miscellaneous topic today, I want to talk about the Radium Girls, which is an absolutely fascinating and heartbreaking story. But before I get to that, I want to talk about what Radium is and our understanding of it before, no. like the 1910s. No, no, no. It's not. This isn't. A, this is a miscellaneous topic. It, it, it is a miscellaneous <laughs> topic, but it comes with. It's a good little bit of silliness in there. Ella, in the same way that the last five minutes of your question, you got to bash capitalism. The first five minutes, right. it's the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. The we breathing meet, room, meet, the leeway. Yeah. Fine, fine. Safe zone. So, what is radium, and who discovered radium? Do either of you know? Ooh. Um. Oh, oh, oh is this Marie Curie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. Ah, what's yeah. its element number? What's its number? Oh, that's such a good question. Did I even write that down? Number 88, I looked up. Lovely. That's low for something that is potentially... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the element was named for the Latin word radius or ray because the radiation emitted from radium is about 3 million times greater than the radiation from uranium. So it's a very... Oh, wow. Yeah. 
It's a very radioactive. It produces a lot of radiation, basically. So Mary Curie, Pierre Curie and their assistant discovered radium in 1898, with Mary Curie being able to isolate the element in 1911. Mary Curie herself is an absolutely fascinating woman. I feel like we could do a whole episode on her. I'm not going to go too much into her today, though. Just um, she has a lot of really, really cool accolades. She was possibly the first woman to be awarded a Nobel Prize. Definitely the first person to be awarded two Nobel Prizes. The first person to be awarded two Nobel Prizes in two different fields as well, wow. etc. The reason that I'm telling you that Mary Curie like, won all of these awards, though, is like she was an incredibly intelligent person. But the reason for me saying it is that people who won Nobel Prizes for their work on this field, on radiation, who lived and died this stuff, experts in their field didn't realize how dangerous these substances were. Mm -hmm. And that includes mm -hmm. radium. Marie Curie died of, they think, cancer from radium, right? That's, so they think it was, was it? cancer from x-rays because she also did quite a lot of work with uh, those. Mm. Fun little fact. Mary Curie and her husband, both of their remains are sealed in lead-lined coffins due to how radioactive their bodies are. Oh Jeez. my God. And all of her papers, you can't access without wearing appropriate PPE uh, <gasps> and like getting appropriate Crazy. responses because of how radioactive it is. The Nobel Prize website says, it seems fitting that Curie left a scientific legacy that is literally untouchable. Oh, come on. It is, it is so on. good. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Also, very funny tip for it to be like, oh, and she died of radium. Like, oh no, she also did X-rays. <laughs> like, she also was did X-rays. Also big into that. She died due to long-term exposure of radiation, famously having carried test tubes containing various radioactive isotopes in her pocket, <sighs> and then storing them in her desk, as well as being exposed to <sighs> X-rays from unshielded equipment while serving as a radiologist in field hospitals during the First World War. Wow. Oh. oh. Oh man, wow. Really, really cool woman, again. Doing science and saving lives, Jesus yeah. Christ. Fully. And after the discovery of radium, especially after it was isolated, radium ended up being everywhere. It was in useful places, like in treatment of cancers and things like that. Um, yeah, and it's still something that we use now for cancer treatments, so. Oh, really? But we also <laughs> liked to put it in places that radium definitely shouldn't go. So I also have a little game for us to play, which is, will it- Hold on, it... wait, do you want me oh, to play that on. theme? Oh my goodness, yes, please do. Yay. <laughs> Listener, you too will have access to these sounds in the Max Fun Foley library coming out soon. Uh, okay, here's the actual theme. Hello and welcome to Will It Radium, the game show where I'm going to list out some products sold in the 1910s to 1930s and you have to tell me, did we put radium in it? Oh, the 10s and 30s is not a good time for it's, this. It's a wild time. That's where most of this story is from. It was, yeah. So the first Will It Radium is chocolate. Will chocolate radium. No fucking way. Please, no, come on. What Please no. For what yeah. reason? <laughs> I guess what uh, I'm thinking is like, why would you put radium in? Does it make it taste better? Could it be a treatment? Like maybe like this is like a fun medical treatment? I've sent a little photo in the Discord server. So yes. I like that you don't even have to confirm. We, we were, yeah. we, both me and Ella were like, are so topic podcast brain that we're like, this is, this has to be, this is so good. 
Oh my fucking God. Radium Schokolade. A German company called Burke and Brown manufactured their Radium Schokolade between 1931 and 1936. Caroline. What the fuck? What <laughs> Caroline. For what they reason? They marketed it as a rejuvenating food. Fucking <laughs> dumbass. <laughs> That's so upsetting, man. <laughs> The, yeah, the vagueness of it is the worst part. The just like that's like saying it's it's good. We we did it cause good. Yeah. Should we go on to the next one? No, I want to stick on this for the rest you of the it? topic. Radium chocolate. <laughs> that's bonkers. The next one is tonics and energy drinks. Will they radium? Oh yes. Oh, what won't oh. we put in a tonic or energy drink? Oh, it's rejuvenating. So, right. so it's rejuvenating. Here is. A little photo. That's why Marie Curie got the Nobel was because it was so rejuvenated. That's like, in, right? it said for discoveries in rejuvenation <laughs> was why she got it. So this is a little glass vial with a cork Ooh. in it. Oh. With, a, with a very old label on it. It's called Radithor. Radithor, yeah. Certified radioactive water contains <laughs> radium and mesothorium in triple distilled water. My God. Right. So, water. Radithor is a cool name, though. Radithor is a sick name. It is, yeah, I'd have that. Yeah. So, radium dissolved really well into water. So, it became a pretty common form of radiation quackery at the time, basically, similar vein to the chocolate. Um, And radithor was one version of this. It was a popular and expensive mixture of two different isotopes of radium in distilled water. Radithor was advertised as an effective treatment for over 150 endocrinological disease. But this included things like sexual impotence as well. They're just all things. It, it was marketed to solve every single one of your problems. What's the, the sawbones saying? Cure alls, cure none? That's the red flag. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a big old bend-a-biz. red flag, right? Yeah, so this stuff was produced from like, Radithor specifically was produced from the mid-1910s to around 1926. And at the time, it could be bought for a dollar, which is around $17. How many people, like, do they have a, is there a study out there, do you think, that showed, like, a spike in just, like, insane thyroid cancer or something in this? so much sex people having now that they're cured from all that. (laughs) Because it works, I assume, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%, right? There's actually a very famous case of a golfer turned steel tycoon called Eben Byers. (laughs) who supposedly would drink four of these Radithor tonics a day. This man died in 1932 at the age of 51 due to radium poisoning. And I'll, yep. I'll maybe talk about his pretty gruesome end later. That is like a baby shoes never worn sentence. The f- golfer turned steel tycoon dies of too much radiation quackery is yeah. just such a <laughs> jam-packed sentence. Such a parody so of the much. time. Yeah. <sighs> the next one on Will It Radium is... Silk. Will silk radium? Yeah. You think yes? Tom, what do you think? Well, I'm going to assume there might be some no. Is it going to be like this is cotton instead or something like that? Uh, I'll say no just for the fun of it because I don't know how it would work. Tom, you're correct. So there was something called radium silk. Which was oh, produced. But was it not silk? Well, hear me out, hear me okay. out. So it was okay, produced yeah, in so 1903 and it was mostly used in women's clothing and underwear. It did not contain radium or any other radioactive material. Oh. What it actually did, That's this so silk interesting. would shimmer in the light, 
bringing to mind this phosphorescence no, of the world's newly discovered heavy metal. So this heavy metal could like glow under certain settings, basically, if you mixed it with the right chemicals. Right. And this radium silk was thought to glisten and glow in a similar way okay. to what radium might. That's so... That's still interesting because it captures the excitement of the time yeah. still that yeah, they were totally. willing to say it was even if it wasn't that's so interesting it also it's um it reminds me of when we were doing when i did the vampirism thing when i was like and vampire squids just kind of look spooky yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like they called it this just because which in retrospect in hindsight is like I'm sure they're like, no, 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 please, please. It wasn't. We were just kidding. Yeah. yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. So essentially people were so drawn to this stuff that it became like this big branding technique, which I think is really funny. That's so and wild. And also <laughs> products that fraudulently said they had radium as an ingredient were shut down by the government. Amazing. Didn't, <laughs> it's great, right? You have to have radium in there. You've got you to have ha radium if you're advertising <laughs> it with radium. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, but this also led to radium itself becoming incredibly expensive to buy to the point where Mary Curie herself could no longer afford to buy radium for her labs to be able to research it. Whoa. That's crazy. And actually was gifted one gram of radium in 1921 by an interested party because it was too expensive for her to purchase. It essentially was gifted to her instead, which I think is wild. What the fuck? Wow. Yeah. The final one of will it radium are watches. Will watches radium. Yeah, absolutely. This There's I still know. some weird watch stuff that happens, right? And I think, and is this where the Radium Girls story this begins? This is where the Radium... Ella, do you not know this story? No, not at all. Oh, oh. wow. Okay, I'm, I thought you would know about this one. I'm really excited to tell you about it. Um, I guess it is a very American story. This stuff didn't mm. really happen here in the UK. Um, but still, it's really, really interesting. So it wasn't wearing the watches that was causing issues. It was actually how these watches were manufactured that caused issues. Yeah. And that's what the bulk of this episode is going to be about. So according to the Science Museum group, prior to World War I, wristwatches were typically mostly worn by women, acting more as like a jewellery piece. Mm. And men typically used pocket watches instead. Um. However, pocket watches were definitely less practical in combat than wristwatches. Mm. That's what, whenever I put any jewelry on, I think, is this practical in, is in this combat? Is for military war? combat? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so pocket watches lost favor for wristwatches to become more popular. So that's great. But can either of you suggest why you would want watches that had radium in them or on them? Is radium pretty? Is it like, it's was it like a decorative thing? Sort of. Ella, do you want to think back to why radium silk was called radium silk? It's shiny. Oh, it's it glow in the dark. It glows in the yeah. dark. There you go. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So if you expose radium to compounds like zinc sulfide, it basically causes it to glow in the dark, which is really, really cool. And this is obviously useful for watches, meaning that the dials and the hands and everything could glow in the dark. And mm -hmm. that's basically why these watches were made. So they were initially made in 1917 for military use, but became popular amongst civilians as well, meaning that production of these watches continued right up until the 1960s and 70s. Again, 
the watches themselves. 60s and 70s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh These boy. were produced for a very long time. I want to reiterate again, it wasn't wearing the watches that caused issues. If you don't consume radium, you tend to get a lot less of an impact from its radiation. So it's consuming radium that causes an issue, which is why tonics and chocolates and things like that cause issues for people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just putting that out there for later on. Because of the type of radiation it emits is alpha radiation. Can't pierce through skin, yeah. so it can't leave you. That's my understanding. Mm. So there were people who were getting impacted by these watches. If it's not the people who are wearing them, who do you think it could be? Yeah, the people making them. It's the people making them. Why yeah. were they eating that? Oh, that's such a that's such a good question. Because they, they got hooked from the chocolate. It was yeah. so <laughs> tasty. Um, <laughs> um, we'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about the sort of people who would end up in this production line, basically, because it was a lot. It was mostly women. What year honest, was it? Doing this job. This was 1917. So it was, you know, around World War One. All the men have yep. gone off. The women uh -huh. have now taking over manufacturing jobs. Yeah. Absolutely. It was also, according to Britannica, women were especially like targeted to take on these roles. Uh, and it became quite a well-paid painting job because of their small hands apparently uh, were well suited mm. for the exacting detailed work that was required to paint the dials and the hands of these watches. Like getting children to crawl into the spaces in workhouses. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with America entering the First World War in uh, 1917 many women viewed this work as dial painters as a very patriotic contribution to the war effort as well mm -hmm. the women hired to paint the dials became known as ghost girls for a period of time because the radium dust which they were exposed to daily <sighs> made their clothes hair and skin oh. glow oh, they're breathing in the dust they are breathing in the dust. There's more to it as well, though. Oh. Uh, this is just an interesting little tidbit of information that within the work culture, it was almost encouraged to allow this to happen with many women wearing their best dresses and best clothes on the job. No way. So that the fabric would literally shine when they went dancing oh or to events God. afterwards. So they could get radium silk. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's um, crazy. Some women apparently That's even bonkers. applied the paint to their teeth huh? to give them radiant smiles. <gasps> okay, so then that's that's not even where the consumption part comes in. That's oh part God. of the issue. I mean, none of this is good. None of this is good. Yeah. So the fact that there's like a thing after thing, and I was like, clearly this, this must be why. I was like, oh no, with that we have it. That's just the icing on the We're cake, baby. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> the way that the paint was actually consumed, though, is it, it feels really awful to me. Tom, do you want to... I feel like you know why it was consumed. Do you want to share with the group what was going on there? Yeah. So, Ella, imagine you're painting a little watch with your fine, <gasps> small hands. Is it like, you know, when you're writing with a quill or something and you lick, like, you lick the end to, like, yep. wet it to do... Yeah. So, yep. like... So they're licking the paint, the radium paint, and oh my god. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad Ella, one of us could, could experience this in real time, the, mm -hmm. the slow so dawning discovery. That... So these women were painting these dials onto watches by hand using teeny tiny little paintbrushes, and they were actively encouraged to use a lip pointing technique which involved pressing the brush between their lips to form a fine point when they dipped uh, the paint into it oh my god every time this was done the women would ingest a small amount of radium and these women were 
instructed to do this technique over using rags or water instead because apparently that would waste time and materials. Wow. Eesh. That Can I say that's, I had never heard that detail that like they had the option, but this was cheaper. That's chilling. Capitalism, once again, leading once to again. this happening to the scale that it did anyway. I, I will say like on the capitalism point, like the dangers of radiation weren't particularly well known at this point, they if were at all. Not. And actually when asked about the radium safety, Many of the workers were assured by managers that they had nothing to worry about. And, and I'm sure the managers believed that as well. It's not like yeah, it was totally. a, you know. And also, like, at the time, this was being used in, like, treatments for various diseases. And in these wonder tonic waters, like, you're seeing all yeah. of this really positive marketing around this substance. So why would you, like, doubt its safety, basically? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that there is an issue there with capitalism in, in the sense of, the marketing of these these things that they had not yeah. tested That's in true. any way. That's true. Or in a way, a willful negligence because yeah. although they didn't know mm, it was dangerous, mm. they didn't check either. Yes. Yeah. 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 Totally. Good point. Yeah. And from about 1917 to maybe 1920, it was all going well. Nobody was seeing any of these issues that could ar arise from consuming radium. By 1921, though, things started to take a time for the worst. Dial painters started to complain of really strange illnesses, including awful toothache that would lead to them having to have their teeth removed and wounds that would never heal, oh. along with severe anemia being common. Oh. One of the most horrible side effects is one that I learned about from the first woman who died from the impact of radiation poisoning in the mouth. Her name was Amelia McGeer. I hope I'm pronouncing her surname right. Uh, and she had worked as a dial painter from 1917 to 1921. On the 12th of September, 1922, at the age of 25, she passed away. Oh man. In the days before her death, according once again to the Science Museum, her dentist was able to lift and remove her oh. entire lower jaw by hand because of the radiation poisoning oh in her mouth. Right, so radiation, for a bit of biological scientific context here, is radiation poisoning, acute or long-term, is just basically your cells, like, they start taking it up, they die, and yeah. when untreated or it's too bad, it just, you're not, your cells aren't being replenished fast enough. Yeah, so it's literally, like, necrosis of the yeah, exactly happening. Yeah, which I think is just horrifying to think about, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. That's fucked. It's so <laughs> fucked. So yeah, in 1923, more deaths were being reported with people like Helen Quinlan, aged 21, and Irene oh. Rudolph, aged 22, being the next victims of radiation poisoning. Oh, they're so young. Oh, yeah. God. By 1924, so two years after the first deaths were recorded, people started to suspect that something foul was afoot, basically, and that the cause of these deaths might have an occupational nature. Mm. Mm. It took a lot and I mean a lot for these women to get any form of legal representation. Wow. In New Jersey, dial painters had informed the health and labor department in the area. Let's go, New Jersey. Yeah, woo. Uh, maybe not, Tom, because they oh, investigated it three times and no action was taken. Oh. Uh, 
gosh. One of the employers called Radium Luminous Materials Corporation, which was later renamed the United States Radium Corporation, actually publicly declared that these women were suffering from syphilis instead. No fucking way. That's with the goal oh, of embarrassing sinister. these women. Yeah, it's and this corporation just keeps coming up with how fucking sinister it's being. Okay, it's now truly we're awful. now we're back on capitalism is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. In 1924, the United States Radium Corporation were actually facing a downturn in business because of the controversy around what was happening to their yeah. workers. So they commissioned a private investigation into the matter, which concluded that the painters had, in fact, died from radium exposure. So, so yay, New Jersey. <laughs> yay to the company, because they found out what, was the, what the issue was. They then promptly hid this investigation nice. okay. so that they well, couldn't be fucking... held accountable. This reminds me of like Shell and other <sighs> like gas and oil companies right? like yeah, yeah, getting yeah. scientists to look at climate change and the scientists being like, yeah, it's happening yeah, and you're causing it. Me. In the 70s and 80s they were doing that and then they were like, yeah, no, no, no. Don't talk about that. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's very similar to that. So what they did was they uh, like hid this paper and then gave falsified results, basically suggesting that they were not culpable for the women's illnesses. So not only did they suppress that falsified, report, there's one thing suppressing it, but then just yeah. Yeah. lying yeah. to be like these women were actually rejuvenated. Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't entirely get away with this. With this all coming to light about a year later in 1925, and with this women started asking for their medical bills to be paid for by the company. Fuck yeah. Who obviously then refused to pay their medical bills. Fuck shit. Fucking, it. it's, it's like amazing. And this hadn't really happened before where women felt like they had such strong grounds for being able to ask the company that they were working for. Yeah, that aspect of it sucks, but it's like good, right? That there is a, a story in this of like yeah, yeah. workers' rights, which is yeah, very interesting. Totally. Yeah. And we'll talk about workers' rights in a little bit because it is really, really interesting oh, yeah. what comes about from this oh. story, oh. basically. So because of all of this, because the company refusing, a woman called Grace Fryer decided that she wanted to sue the United States Radium Corporation. Oh, shit. Even with the growing proof of the impact of the company, the obvious deceptions, etc., it would still take her two years to find a lawyer who was willing to represent her. Wow. In 1927, five surviving radium girls, Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Edna Hussman, Quinta Magia McDonald, and Albina Magia Laris, the sisters of the first dial painter to have died, oh, wow. all filed a lawsuit together against their former employer with the help of a lawyer named Raymond Berry. I'm going to send you a photo of these women just because I think it's important to put faces to some yeah. of these names and they're really, really cool women. I like their hats. Their hats are good. It's very flapper era. Kind it of. really they, they is. They don't look like it? flappers, yeah. but they have like that kind of like styling. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, these are these are women ready to take on capitalism. Oh yes. Well, so we say this. By the time their court appearances came around in 1928, the women were too weak to appear oh in my court God. because of what was happening. God. So they did. They did get to appear. Two of them were bedridden, and the rest couldn't raise their arms high enough to be able to take the oath That's before so going into court. Whoa. That's how unwell they were. So, could you, do we have like a number of how many people had died up to this point? For the whole course of the dial painters dying, it was about 112 dial painters wow. with 
hundreds if not thousands more being impacted negatively by the radiation poisoning still a lot yeah that's crazy which like i think it was only three companies in the united states were producing these watches so three companies caused 112 deaths at least um they didn't win their case because they settled their case okay everybody Mm. it's okay and this case was being called the radium girls case in the media at this point which is why we know them as the radium girls now Mm. it was settled in 1928 with the settlement for each radium girl being about ten thousand dollars each which is about one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in 2022 they would Mm -hmm. get more money yearly and all of their medical and legal expenses were to be paid by the company. This is the first time in American history that a company was paying for the medical expenses of their workers because of what had happened whilst they were working there. Good. Good precedent, yeah. This led to more cases. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, this led to more cases against other dial painting firms and the publicity was a factor in establishing the occupational disease labor law. This case also established the right of an individual worker to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse. And it meant that health and safety standards on an industrial level were massively improved for the decades to follow, which wow. is Let's go. amazing. I mean, it's a shame that this had to be done for that to happen but um yeah this also isn't the end of the legacy for the radium girls during the cold war there was more public interest in the effects of radiation from power to the fear of radioactive fallout and in 1956 the atomic energy commission created a committee to investigate the long-term effects of radioactive isotopes used in nuclear weapons Mm. as the radium girls were the only known suitable examples of the impact of radiation how it impacted the human body many of these surviving women volunteered to be subjects of medical examinations for many years to follow oh wow very good of them right the fact that this happened to them and they were still willing to go and do that yeah holy shit on a voluntary basis as well is incredible Mm. and this research led to the aec that atomic energy commission that i mentioned earlier it led to them pushing for reduced nuclear activity in 1957 wow and by 1963 because of this action A ban was finally agreed between the US, the UK and the USSR at the time, prohibiting those three countries from conducting nuclear tests anywhere but underground. So 112 deaths led to this huge treaty between three countries, essentially. Holy moly. And possibly saved hundreds of thousands of lives in the process. That's bonkers the repercussions of insane yeah 112 people dying and five women being willing to sue the company that they were working for led to potentially all of this from happening that's incredible in an npr interview with katie moore author of the book radiant girls moore said through their willingness to allow scientists to probe their bodies they have given us a store of knowledge about internal radiation that we simply would not have otherwise if they weren't prepared to Mm. do that and i think for many of the women it was their gift to humanity that we're still benefiting from today. An incredible story, right? But do you think that this stopped radium from being put into those tonics and chocolates and things like that? Well, the way you're asking that question is making me think probably not. <laughs> I've listened to this podcast a few times and I yeah. Caroline's doing a shaky no dance. It's a big old no. So the use of radium in various products continued on after That's this. And what's this insane? What? It's fucking 
bullshit. This is right. I, this is one aspect of this story that I think is quite American. Yeah, it took yeah. these women <laughs> getting very ill, hundreds of people dying, yeah. 112 people dying. These women getting ill to sue the company to set mm-hmm. a precedent for the future. I'm not saying the UK would have handled this well, but in other countries, when this mm, started happening, mm. it would have been put into legislation very quickly. Immediately. That you could not use radium in products, yeah. in working, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But because this yeah. was a legal basis for this one specific thing, and America moves in a different way politically, it didn't yeah, get yeah. out to the other products, which is it bonkers. It's absolutely insane. You shouldn't have to Ooh. sue for these things. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, well, you only did watches. We could still do yeah, chocolate. Yeah, we can still. As yeah. soon as it became evident that it was from consuming that, mm-hmm. it should have been passed countrywide yeah. in all products. Absolutely, yeah. The person who gets the honor, I guess, of being the person to get it out of Radathor, at least, and similar tonic water companies, was somebody I mentioned earlier. It was Eben Byers, the golfer turned steel tycoon who was oh. drinking four of these tonic waters a day. Right. He sued them. So he didn't sue them as such. What happened was he stopped consuming Radathor in 1930 after his teeth started falling out. <sighs> a oh. case was made against the company advertising it as this wonder treatment, the Bailey Radium Laboratories. And in the process of like this case happening, basically, Byers was interviewed. The person who went to interview him in his home was shocked by what he saw, basically, when he spoke Mm. to Byers. I have got a photo if you want to see what Byers looked like at the time. Show me. It's pretty awful. I'm I'm already horrified, so... Oh, fuck. Oh, my my God. He's missing his jaw. It's not for the faint of heart. Don't, you know. Tom, do you want to describe what that photo looks like? No, I don't. It looks like a a zombie. He looks like a zombie. Like, that is the only description, right? That's really, really horrifying. And he did die not long after this photo was taken. And that photo entered the press, basically. Mm. So the horrors of what was happening to people who were consuming Radathor specifically was becoming extremely widespread and well-known. And that is what led to Radathor essentially ceasing activities and radium not being used in these tonic waters anymore. Okay. And it stopped it from being used as a therapeutic treatment in other foods and things like that, at least in the US. Obviously, in Germany, radium chocolates were still being consumed until (laughs) 1936 at least. But just remember those five women who sued that company who brought fantastic workers' rights into place because of what was happening to them and the scientific research that happened after that because I think that's the story that is most important here. Yeah, that was an amazing story in its own horrifying way. Thank you, Caroline. Yeah. Like, I've You're never so heard that welcome. before. I want to shout out a friend from the Science Museum, Gabrielle, who wrote a really interesting article about the Radium Girls and that's what inspired oh, me cool. to talk about this one today. That's linked to down below give it a read because it is an absolutely fascinating story and there is so much more that you can learn about it there's a link there as well which talks about other women who went on to sue various companies for what happened their work is incredible too so do go and have a look at all of that stuff tom Woo. yes ella what's up it's review corner Woo. it sure is yeah um this week's review 
comes from It's Me, Dave. Hi, Hi Dave. Dave. It, well, their name is It's Me, Dave. Hi, It's Me, Dave. It's Me, Dave. Hi, It's Me, Dave. <laughs> they say, I created an Apple account just to leave this review. <laughs> That's great. I seriously love this podcast. The crew has such good chemistry and they genuinely enjoy sharing what they've learned. You never know what topics will come up every week and they'll often lead you down a certain path only to pull a switcheroo and flip everything you thought you knew <laughs> on its head. I can't tell you how many times I've gasped while listening to the show. They have better twists in their scientific storytelling than M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a praise that is. Oh, thank you so much. It's me, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Which is funny because the real twist is we've been dead the whole time, this whole episode. Ooh. Whoa. Whoa, this podcast. Wow. Came. The beach makes you old. <laughs> the podcast <laughs> makes you old. <laughs> the trees are killing people in the podcast. The trees are making the podcast. I don't know what that uh, one this. is you're referring to. That's, um, I forget which one. He did one of those. He did one of the trees killing people. Yeah. One of those. Oh, it had Mark Wahlberg was in that one. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Another thing we could do if we want to be like Emnat Shyamalan is we could butcher a beloved animated series like The Last Airbender. We could do that and be like Emnat Shyamalan. <laughs> Nice. One day. Why not? Um, we're all trapped in an elevator. Uh, anyway, and with the devil, and and the devil is me. <laughs> I realize I I have to ask for plugs and shoutouts, and that's why this is taking so yeah, long. Because yeah. instead of doing that, yeah, I'm coming up with any uh, yeah. Night Shyamalan movies. Um, one of us is super strong, the other is super fragile. Um, <laughs> oh, you're still going. Uh, do okay, we have cool. any plugs? Do we have any plugs and shoutouts? I have I have one quick plug, which is that I was on uh, Maximum Film talking about oh, the yeah. movie Oppenheimer. <gasps> it was a delight. We also got to talk a bit about some some science stories and um, talk about the film, which is eh. <laughs> that's my you short didn't, review you didn't you can, like you the film yeah. or you just thought it was kind of i haven't seen it yet yeah, i had i had thoughts i i was i liked it better than i thought but there were okay. also boys some some scenes are goofy interesting Ooh. i'm gonna some i'm gonna see it soon we yeah. also learn about some strike news and stuff like that. I checked it is strike kosher because we are critiquing and reviewing the film. Oh, nice. Um, and we also talk about some some strike news. Um, so yeah, it's a good it's a good time. Go listen to it, and they're great. Ah, nice. I'll plug all of us. If you don't know, we do have a Discord server where you can go and share your thoughts about the podcast as well as give us suggestions for other topics, have a chat with fellow members of the community, all of that good stuff. Let us know your favorite superseded theories. Yes, please do. Share your TB memes if any of you joined John in that tirade. <laughs> How many teeth have you lost to radium poisoning? Okay, you know, well... All of that. <laughs> Well, actually, if you can, if you know any other radium objects to share. Oh my goodness, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> you can find our Discord server at letslearneverything.com and also all of our personal bits. Ella Hubbard, oh, yes. Caroline the Bug, Tom Lum Person. Find us in the places. Today, we learned about superseded theories in science from amber to expanding earth from the silly to the the legitimately surprising and the the joy and lessons we can learn from that as a part of science caroline seems to be conducting tom for some reason <laughs> like from here you're giving to me clues and hints i appreciate it yeah yeah um we learned about um sounds like two syllables um we, le uh, we learned about tuberculosis and how it is not just an old disease how it's still a thing that we can work on today how it's complicated both by biology but also by a little thing called capitalism mm. um <laughs> and how there's a lot of there's still a lot of progress we can do to help uh to help save lives in this this modern day and we learned about 
the radium girls uh, we learned how much we we mistakenly loved radium and the people who suffered from that and who in spite of their physical weakness fought very hard and made an impact in the world that we live in today yeah but most importantly you can join us next time where we will learn about Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lump, and Caroline Roper, with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lump. We're learning about everything, it's everything. We're gonna learn about everything. Yeah! I don't know where like Let's Learn Everything was filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> What's up? And then Ella goes, comedy. And everyone goes, <laughs> Oh, Ella's still going. I didn't even realize. <laughs> Were you holding the thing, everything? <laughs> I can't wait to hear this in the, the, in the final cut. Co- I missed going. it. We were so like into what I was doing. King. Everything. (laughs) Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.